Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship, and I have the pleasure of sharing the word uh, with you this morning. As we transition into this time, there's a few things you should know and a few things you should have. Um, you're going to want a Bible, so if you didn't bring one along with you, we have some in the back that Becca can hand out, so just uh, raise your hand or turn around, and, and she'll help you out with that. You should have also had a little sheet of paper on your chair that's your outline to take notes on the sermon, and a pen might be helpful for that too, and Becca can help you get those things. We also want you to know that we welcome children in the service with us. We also have the option of a nursery that's available. If you go out the back door and turn left a couple times, um, there's people in there who are uh, ready and waiting to take care of your kids if you you should like, but you're also welcome to have them here with us. So um, as uh, Becca finishes handing those things out, we'll transition on into our uh, sermon in John. We're continuing our uh, sermon series in 1 John. The text we're going to be looking at is on page 660, if you're using the church Bible, Um, but it's uh, 1 John at the end of chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and turn there. But first, I wanted to relate something um, about something I thought about as I looked at this text. One of the things that is my greatest joys in my season of life right now is the joy that I experience when I come home from work every day. Because I have two daughters, Ella is sitting back there with my wife Karen, and Annie just went to the nursery. Um, They're at the age when it's still a really big deal when Daddy comes home from work, especially for Annie. She is something of a Daddy's girl. Uh, If you come to the picnic, you'll probably see me holding her because that's where she wants to be most of all, which warms my heart. It's a wonderful thing. But when I come home from work, Annie's reaction these days is really something special. When she sees me, her smile just spreads across her face, and she stands up and starts walking towards me, and she says, Dad, Dad, and throws her arms open. She, She wants a hug. She wants to be held. It's a wonderfully encouraging thing and and something that I think is really special right now. The reason I tell that story is that John, the apostle, is drawing on similar imagery to this when he writes this letter to talk to us about what it's like to relate with God. He describes our relationship with God as being God's children. That's why the sermon is titled what it is, Children of God. And so as we read this text, we're going to see that, and I hope that it will be encouraging and perhaps challenging too as we look at what this text says. Challenging because just as Dan last week, if you were here last week, Dan Miller walked us through the prior text where the Apostle John laid out three tests for how do you know if you're a Christian? Or in today's the context for this text today, how do you know if you are a child of God? We're going to look at the first of those texts. The apostle has taken the first one and expanded it. So we're going to go in depth on the first point that Dan made last week. So with that as a, uh, an introduction, I'm going to go ahead and read the first part of our text this morning, which uh, is starting at 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when we, he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's two sections on your outline. You see the first one that we're entering into right now is uh, what does it mean to be a child of God? So the first thing we're going to do is just talk about what does this mean, this, this imagery of being a child of God? And then the second section you see on there is we're going to consider that test. How do I know if I am a child of God? But first, what does it mean to be a child of God? Before we get into the more of an explanation of what it means, I just wanted to point out to you the emphasis that John puts on this idea. You saw it in verse 1 of chapter 3. Look how emphatic he is. He says, see, or in older versions of the Bible, it uses the word behold. He wants his readers to look at this. He says, look, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John uses that as an introduction. He's saying, this is something we should pay attention to. This is something extraordinary. So there's a couple of ideas of what it means to be a child of God that I'm going to point us to. The first one that John talks about is that being a child of God means that we can be unashamed when Jesus comes back. Being a child of God means that we can be unashamed when Jesus comes back. And actually, the first thing I'll point out to you about that is that John takes it for granted that his readers know that Jesus is coming back. He takes it for granted. They they expect that it's going to happen. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can live my life in the day-to-day. I'm focused on what's happening right now. And I don't give reference to what might happen next week, much less this expectation of the Lord's return. But it's a critical thing for us to understand that Jesus is coming back. That's something we look forward to. In the same way that a little child looks forward to her mommy or daddy coming home from work, we can look forward to Jesus returning. And not just that we look forward, but that The way we think about how we will appear before Jesus is critical here. See, there's a couple of ways that we could anticipate feeling when Jesus comes back. One way is the joyous reception that we feel we don't have anything to be ashamed of before God. Um, But there's different ways to do that too. And uh, the way I could think of to help explain this actually is, is another kind of uh, way that, that I've seen um, somebody uh, when I come home. Uh, have you ever, have you ever, any of you ever seen when a dog knows that it has misbehaved? Have you ever seen what a dog does when it knows it's ripped up your shoes or made a mess somewhere? The dog doesn't give you the normal reception that you would get when you come home, right? They give you the, they kind of slink up to you. They kind of turn around and face their backside toward you and with tail between their legs, this shameful look on their face. 
And it's just a pitiful thing. And, so, and you know right away that you're going to find something that you don't want to find somewhere else in the house. <laughs> that, that shameful feeling is really the opposite of what John is saying. He wants his readers to understand about what they can feel when Jesus comes back. <clears throat> Look at it there in, in verses, verse 29. <clears throat> in, sorry, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The picture we should have, that we should have, of Jesus' return is one of where there is no shame, that we can stand before him without any feeling of having done wrong, with just joy at his coming. Do you know that this is how God wants to relate with you? It's, it's natural for us, and oftentimes, depending on, on what kind of background you've come from, this may not be the way that you think about God. Do any of you tend to think about God as kind of disapproving of things that you do? That God has a bunch of rules and... Um, and you recognize that you don't keep those rules perfectly. And so this the whole idea about uh, coming before God or even going to church might have some connections to kind of feeling guilty, kind of feeling like you don't measure up. If, if that's your feeling, look at what John is saying here. It's a different picture. He wants us to understand that when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him. Furthermore, it's not just that, that God wants us to toe the line and follow the rules and that we can somehow learn how to do this and for that reason not be shamed for God. What, what God is looking for is not a slavish, soul-sucking subservience, but he wants us to feel that joy that my little girl Annie feels when, when I come home at the idea of his return. <clears throat> That's what God wants us to feel. Now, the thing is, our picture isn't complete yet because we haven't really talked about why it is that we might feel ashamed of Jesus' return. I mentioned how some of us might feel just a kind of a tendency toward that. Or If you've learned that you're supposed to feel guilty, maybe you would feel that way. But, but there actually is a real challenge. There's a real problem here a real reason that maybe we wouldn't feel ashamed, that we would feel ashamed when Jesus returns. And we can't, we really can't appreciate the magnitude of being confident and unashamed before Jesus until we understand how unlike him we are. How unlike him we are in our current state. And that leads us into our second thing of what it means to be a child of God. And that means, that is that being a child of God means being like Jesus. It's being like Jesus. We see this in verse 2, where he says, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The culmination of that happens at Jesus' return is that we will be just like Jesus. It's, uh, 
a truism, right, that children resemble their parents. This happens physically, just in physical appearance, but really it goes a lot far beyond that, doesn't it? Because sometimes children don't look anything like their parents physically, but still look a lot like their parents in their the, the way that they they think about life, the way that they interact with people. Probably, um, if you're old enough to have started to define yourself as independent from your parents, you've started to see just how like them you are. <clears throat> And sometimes even our best efforts at uh, being different from our parents really are we're just defining ourselves in contrast to them. So we can we t- children look a lot like their parents, in good ways and in bad ways. And the truth is that we have inherited a lot of bad things from our parents. And here I'm speaking not just literally of your parents that you grew up with, uh, but that you've inherited from mankind a lot of bad things. This is expressed, as John said, in an earlier chapter that we've already read together. If you remember chapter 1, verse 8, where John said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The reason we are so separated from God, the reason we are so different from Jesus, is that short little word, is sin. Sin makes us different from Jesus and separates us from God. But there's a promise that's given here. There's a promise that it doesn't have to stay this way. As it said in verse 29 that we looked at, if we're going to be unashamed at Jesus' return, we need to be righteous like him. And furthermore, chapter 3, verse 2 says that we will be like him when he appears if we're his children. God has promised not to leave us where we are, but as we trust in him to change us, to make us like Jesus. You see, Jesus came for this very reason. There's another thing that John describes here, that the reason for Jesus coming, we'll we'll see that in a little bit later in the text. The reason Jesus came the first time was to live a perfect life, to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserved so that we could live that perfect life, so that we could have his righteousness. God has made a promise that he extends to those who put faith in him to make us like Jesus, to make us people who will be unashamed at Jesus' coming. So being a child of God entails being like Christ, and not just when he comes, but it means a process of growth and change even now. It means we're not going to stay the same if we're children of God. And in fact, it can lend toward a feeling of that we feel like we're not at home here in the world. Did you see what what John said about that in verse 1? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world didn't understand Jesus. He came preaching a message that on some levels was, was one that everyone should receive. The message of loving other people, of putting others before yourself. That should have been a message that was uncontroversial. But the thing is, his message was more than that. It was a message of worshiping God ahead of oneself. It was a message that the world didn't understand. 
The world didn't understand, and so it didn't understand Jesus. And as we become more like Jesus, the world won't understand us. That's something that John wants his readers to understand, is that we should expect to feel not quite at home here in the world. When we are children of God, it changes us. It changes things like our motivations. It leads us to make decisions that are different from what we might have made otherwise. Oftentimes, this happens in the area of of careers. That's some of the biggest decisions we make. An example I often think of is something that was in my wife Karen's experience. Karen made her parents very proud by being the first in her family to go to college. And her parents had a lot of expectation and and hope for for her career, uh, that she would get her degree and use her degree to study and um, and to, to, to make the most of what she had studied. So happens that Karen went into a field where a bachelor's degree doesn't really let you do anything. Um, you need a master's degree to, to practice in that field. And But the other thing that happened for Karen when she was in college was that she really grew in the Lord. And she started to discern in her life a calling to be a missionary, to, to spend her time as a vocation to reach out and share the gospel. And for her, that's how she understood being faithful. I'm not saying that being a missionary is always being more faithful than, than getting a master's degree. But in Karen's case, that's how she felt. But her parents didn't understand that decision. Her parents thought that she was wasting her education and had a lot of trouble understanding uh, why it is that she would, in their eyes, walk away from her education. The truth is she was being faithful to what... Uh, to what God had called her to. And, and thankfully, her parents have come to see that in the time since then and are, and are wonderfully supportive of it now. <clears throat> but sometimes we make decisions that, that make people not quite understand. The key thing in all of it is that in making our decisions, in walking in the world now, that we st- are striving to be close to Jesus, that we're striving to be like him. <clears throat> The truth is that our hope for this future, the future of Jesus' return, our hope for that future when Jesus will come back and will complete that change that's happening in our hearts, our hope for that future shapes our lives now. It's what leads us to make those decisions and what gives us purpose in our lives now. So to sum up where we've been, what does it mean to be a child of God? It means Being a child of God means that when we think about Jesus returning, coming back to the world to receive his children, we can think about facing Jesus without shame because of what Jesus has done for us. And it also means that in our lives now as we anticipate Jesus coming back, that we'll be becoming more and more like him, that we'll be like Jesus, and that that might even affect the way that others see us. We're moving along now to the second section, which is that test. How do I know if I am a child of God? What we've already said about what it means to be a child of God will help us understand this. But we're going to read the rest of the, I'll read the rest of the text here, and then we'll talk about how we know if we're a child of God. Starting at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I mentioned earlier how this this text that we're looking at from John is an expansion of one of the tests that we looked at last week. Um, The way it was worded last week was that we know that we're a Christian if we keep his commandments. And what we're looking at here is an expansion of that. Um, It's an expansion of the idea of keeping commandments. But the phrase that, that John uses now is this idea of a practice of sinning. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So here now we're grappling with this problem that I mentioned before. The problem that we all have taken on the nature of humanity, of being apart from God, of sinning against God. And John is trying to help his readers understand, to tease out the difference between what happens for a believer who does still have some sin in his life and someone who is not a child of God and who has this practice of sinning. So, of course, that leads to the question, what, what does this mean, the practice of sinning? And first, let, let's cover what doesn't it mean. And Dan made the same point last week because um, it's the same dynamic that's at work here. A practice of sinning, the thing that shows that you're not a child of God, that does not mean that there is no sin in your life whatsoever. How do we know that? Well, Remember, chapter 1, verse 8, in this same letter, just several paragraphs earlier, John wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he stated it pretty clearly here that when he talks about a practice of sinning, he doesn't mean that anyone who sins at all is making a practice of sinning because he's ruled out that meaning just in the prior text. Another clue we see to that is in uh, verses 2 and 3 here where we see that we have this expectation in the future when Jesus returns of being perfected, but that right now we're still purifying ourselves. That also shows that we're not saying that a practice of sinning doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you don't sin at all. But what does it mean? So it means something real here. What does it mean? And here it'll be helpful to understand the situation in which John was writing. Because this is, after all, this is a real letter. It's written by a real person to real people at a real time in history. And it helps to understand what was happening at that time to understand what John means. John was confronting an early form of a system of thinking called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, in a nutshell, said that one of the things it did was it made a dichotomy. It said that the physical world, physical matter, was bad, was dirty, it was corrupt. Everything physical was, was bad. Everything spiritual, everything that was just an idea or an ideal, that's what was good. So Gnostics had a real, real hard time with 
uh, with the things that were physical. And, and what can we say? Our lives, we have physical bodies. We live in a physical world. So we confront that a lot. The Gnostics dealt with this um, through an idea of secret knowledge. And that's what the word Gnostic means. It relates to the word for knowledge. The Gnostics believed that believed that if you had this secret knowledge, if you were on the in the in crowd, one of the few people who understood the the realities of life, then the the dirtiness of the physical world didn't pertain to you. Some of them went the direction of establishing really strict rules for themselves so that they wouldn't do anything wrong physically speaking. But others of them went the other direction and said that because they were spiritual, that the, the rules of what's right and wrong didn't apply to them quite the same way that they applied to all those other uninitiated, dirty people. And some of them, including a man named Serenthus, whom Warren mentioned in the overview sermon, if you were here for that a few weeks ago, the guy that uh, John the Apostle wouldn't even be in the same building as because he uh, considered him such a dangerous teacher. Uh, Serenthus said, basically... You know, because we have this special knowledge, it doesn't matter what we do. Sin doesn't affect us. We're not going to be brought down by it because we're spiritual. We're not going to be corrupted by sin. So we can do whatever we want to. So I'm going to list for you a few ways that we can fail this test. And the first one is what I've just described. You, You fail the test if you see that there are different rules of what's right and wrong that pertain to other people than what pertains to you. A key part of understanding of being a child of God is understanding that God is the one who establishes what is right and wrong. It's not a standard we make up for ourselves. It's not a standard that pertains differently from one person to another. So if... And this is a pretty extreme thing to to apply full-blown Gnosticism. There's probably not many of you who will connect with that. But maybe uh, you might be more likely to connect with a sense of God not quite being necessary for us to know what's right and wrong. Kind of feeling like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. I know what's right and what's wrong. And sure, the Bible kind of tells us some of those things, but I can figure that out on my own. I don't really need God to, to let me know about that. Another way that we can fail this test of seeing whether we're a child of God is, uh, is a, way, a way of thinking that I think might be pretty common. So I want you to, as you hear this, consider whether this might describe you. If you consider yourself okay, as, as long as you avoid the really bad sins, like murder, things like that, as long as you avoid the really bad sins, and as long as your good kind of outweighs your bad, that you'll be okay. This is uh, sort of grading ourselves on the curve, thinking that as long as we're kind of better than than most other people or maybe just some other people, then we'll be okay because, I mean, what more could God ask of of us than, you know, we're going to do our best. I'm going to try to be a good person. The problem is that this opens the door to a great deal of self-deception. Because if your way of measuring whether you're good enough is whether you can see people who are worse than you, you're always going to be able to see people who are worse than you, even if it means, 
you know, going to the rhetorical Hitler or, or Stalin or somebody like that and referring to them, well, I'm better than that. Uh, but, but even without going so far as to, to invoke those, those people who are so often invoked as the worst people around, <clears throat> the self-deception comes in because we tend to be blind to those areas in which we do the wrong thing. And so we could see someone else who does something bad that, that we consider bad, but in the area that, that we coddle our own weaknesses, well, we don't really think about that too much. We can always compare ourselves favorably to somebody else. And we can get into patterns like setting up our own standards, something like saying, well, if, if I give 10% of my income to the church, then I can do whatever I want with the rest of it because I've met this sort of standard that I have. This is what it means to be a good person. And so then I can decide what I want to do after that. <clears throat> this, this could be a practice of sinning. It could be a way of justifying doing the wrong thing, the thing that God says is not the right thing. <clears throat> Another one. If you suppress what you know to be right and wrong with the intent of correcting it later, and this is something that's so tempting to do um, in the college years. I remember the feeling myself. What better time is there to enjoy everything the world has to offer than those years that you're in college and you're there together with all other young people who have a relatively little responsibility and you're all living together and everything in the world is there on campus. <clears throat> it can be really easy, whether consciously or not, to think, well, uh, I'm going to... I'm going to enjoy what I have now. And after college, I'll go, I'll go back to church. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to God after that. It may be on a broad time scale like that, or it might be on a more micro time scale. It might be, well, I know that, uh, that, um, that, that doing this particular thing, that you know, eating this ice cream to help me feel better about myself is not the right thing to do right now. But... It's only a moment, and, and I'll do something better later. That, that kind of thinking, that kind of thinking that says, this isn't that bad, and I'll just correct for it later, is something that could mask a practice of sinning that might show that you're not a child of God. <clears throat> Let me broaden it out even a little bit more, and then we'll start talking about what do we do with this. When someone close to you looks at your life, if someone close to you were to observe your life, someone who's known you for a while, and if they were to say that there's patterns of disobedience in your life that haven't changed for years, that might reflect a practice of sinning rather than just the sin struggle that's in the lives of believers. Could that describe you? Are there areas of your life that just don't change at all, not even a little bit, maybe even go in the wrong direction? here's what John says to this. He gives a warning that's given out of love for his people. He says, little children, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. God's work and Satan's work are irreconcilable. So these patterns that we might have of justifying or coddling sin, thinking that we're still okay, John is saying it's not okay. They cannot exist in the same person at the same time. 
Little children, don't be deceived. The work of Jesus and the work of the devil are absolutely opposed to one another. As he said here in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That was the whole reason Jesus came in the first place. There's no ceasefire between the two. There's no way that they can get along with each other. It's one nature or the other. I gave some thought to titling this sermon, Who's Your Daddy? But thought it would be a little flippant for a sermon title. But it expresses the idea. Who's your daddy? Do you serve the devil? Is your practice of life reflect him and his works? Or are you a child of God? Are you a child of God whose life reflects growth in him, being more like Jesus? I'll say it again, brothers and sisters. A practice of sinning is absolutely opposed to being a child of God. A practice of sinning cannot exist in the life of a child of God. Little children, let no one deceive you. We can't let these things exist at the same time in our hearts. So what do we do with this? Let me speak to, to, uh, to, the, to you in uh, addressing different situations where you might be. Some of you are here and uh, are just really checking out Christianity. You, you wouldn't even claim to be a Christian. Um, you're here because a friend invited you or a um, family member brought you along. And you're willing to, to hear this out, but, but you wouldn't uh, necessarily say, yes, I believe this. I want to address you specifically because the thing I most want you to see is the character of God and the type of relationship that God wants to have with you. As we were saying before, depending on where you've come from, you might have lots of different ideas about how God expects his people to think about him. The picture that we see here in this scripture is the picture of who our God really is, a loving father who wants his children to to find joy and peace in him. He's not primarily a rule maker or a buzz killer. He's not primarily an angry person who's just looking to smash us at the first mistake we make. He's primarily a loving father who wants us to leave behind the things that are killing us and wants us to have joy in him. So if you're in that situation, don't put off the decision you're making about who God is and who Jesus is. Wrestle with that decision right now and consider whether what Jesus is offering is something better than what you know already. Now let me speak to those of, of us who do claim to be Christians, who have been in or around the church at least for a while. But as I walked through these patterns, where I was talking about a pattern of sin, practice of sin, you felt more than just a pang of uh, recognition that that you were not yet like Jesus, but you recognized a practice of sin in your life. If that describes you, this is a call to repent, to turn away. It's not too late. Don't go back to the sense of shame 
that you need to make yourself measure up. Don't go back to feeling like, oh, I've just got to try harder. That's the pattern that's kept you where you are. Repent of that pattern and repent of trying to do it yourself and go to Jesus as the child, the little child who doesn't really have anything to offer to her father, but who wants to be like daddy. Run to Jesus and ask Jesus to help you. Pray that he would give you a heart of faith and pray that he would change your life. For those of you who, um, who recognize that sin is present in your life, as it is for all of us, um, but who also are recognize that, that God has been changing you as you've put faith in him, and that you have seen ways that your hope and your, your likeness to God has grown. The application for you is, is be encouraged and be confident. Repent of sin, yes, but don't dwell. Don't, don't be like the dog who expects to be beaten for the thing that he's done wrong. That's the exact thing that John is telling us not to do. He tells us to expect Jesus appearing, to have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and he accomplished that mission. That work is done. It's, a, it's for us just to rest in it, to choose to have confidence in what Jesus did instead of in what we do. So that means that even as we confront the sin that's in our lives, that we can know with confidence that that when Jesus comes, it will be a day of celebration and not a day of dread. It's the things that our, that our life is pointing ahead to. It's the greatest fulfillment of everything we do. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone deceive you that sin is less than it is. But don't let anyone deceive you that if you are in Christ, that the devil can make any accusations against you. Jesus has paid for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love for us is so complete that we who are sinners and who, apart from you, do deserve destruction, that you have made a way for us. By your life and death and resurrection, you have made it possible for us to 